the following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is consumer finance expert uh, from WallHub, Jill Gonzalez. Uh, we're going to be talking about 2017's best and worst states for women's equality. With the U.S. ranking number 45 out of 144 countries on the Global Gender Gap Index, falling 17 points since the previous year, the personal finance website WalletHub conducted an in-depth analysis of 2017's best and worst states for women's equality. Consumer finance expert Jill Gonzalez shares the findings of these this analysis and takes a closer look at why women in every state earn less than men. Jill is featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal, Live, and C-SPAN. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jill. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. All right, before we start, before we start talking about the best and, and uh, worst states for women's equality, tell us, uh, tell us exactly, first of all, about yourself, but also, I guess, Primarily, let's start with Wall Wallet Hub. What is it? Uh, what's the mission? What do you do at Wallet Hub? Absolutely. So, Wallet Hub is a personal finance website that's really geared toward consumers and helping them make the most educated financial decisions they possibly can. So, especially now, kind of around the end of the summer, back to school season, back to work season, a lot of people are thinking about relocation or thinking about their next moves. And women especially might have more of a decision to make than others here. So that's really why we looked into this. Women's Equality Day was last month, and we really have continued the conversation since. All right, Joe, so how did you get into You've been at Wallet Hub for quite a while now, right? For a lot of issues. But uh, why, why would you say this issue specifically is for you is something that you want to focus on? Well, I think it helps that I'm a woman, so I think we see a lot of these things firsthand. Uh, We see what our mothers have dealt with, hopefully what a better world for our daughters can look like, you know, so I think that this is certainly a top issue right now, especially in this political climate. I think work in general, labor in general, and we're just coming off of Labor Day here, it's a big hot-button issue right now, and there's many subsets that are affected by it differently. Women are certainly one of them. Uh, we're seeing a lot of other types of subsets now struggling, protesting, kind of for the same reasons. But we're diving into this whole women's equality feature, and we mentioned work already, but it's important to note we also looked into education, health care, and political empowerment for women as well. How do we know the information we're getting is the truth? Because all we hear about now is fake news, fake news, fake news. How do you kind of sort out, is this true, is the news that we're getting, or uh, say from WalletHub, is that true, is that not fake? 
how do, just as consumers, how do we sort of call out what the truth is and what's fake? Whenever I'm looking at an, any type of news piece, I always look at the sources first. Because I want to make sure they're nonpartisan. I want to make sure that they are trusted sources. And at WalletHub, we do only quantitative research. So these are not surveys of people's opinions. These are just going to be numbers. And this data used to create the rankings here were collected from the Census, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the National Center for Education Statistics, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so all government-backed sources, and these are really the numbers that we have to work with. And I think another thing is, I mean, just looking into your background, too, you're not just somebody who obviously sits down and writes a blog and talks about, uh, you know, and puts down anything that you think is, that you think is important, but your background, I think, is important, too, because you're a senior analyst for WalletHub and have a degree as I see it, in strategic communications from Ohio State. So that's important as well uh, in, in terms, I think, in terms of credibility, um, who the messenger is. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're in the age of bloggers, it does seem, and it, that's fine too. I mean, as long as their sources are hopefully government-backed as well, that's fine. But, you know, this is completely nonpartisan site. We get everything straight from the government. We have good relationships with our contacts at all of these agencies. So we really try to put forward the most accurate information as possible. With that said, now let's talk about, let's get into the topic and talk about the information. 2017's Best and Worst States for Women's Equality. Um, So... How do you how do you go about gathering this information? Let's let's talk. We should go. We're going state by state, right? Yeah. So a lot of this is going to be national data that is available for each of these states. We looked at three different categories, as we said, the workplace environment. So that really covers everything from income disparity, employment rate disparity, average number of work hours for women and men. We then looked at education and health. So not only the educational attainment difference here, how many people hold a bachelor's degree or an advanced degree, but also how many people were not able to visit the doctor due to costs within the last year. And then finally, political empowerment. So here we didn't just look at the U.S. Senate or House of Representatives, which I think is a lot easier to gauge, but we also looked at the disparity in the share of lawmakers in state legislature or state elected executives, so it's a pretty holistic piece, and all of these metrics were really fine-tuned with the help of academic experts from across the country, usually professors in gender and women's studies. All right, let's kind of take these state by state, um, and I mean, we have 50 states here to cover. Uh, let's, you know, in terms of best states for women's equality, um, let's take some of those statistics and apply them specifically to, from the, I guess, from the best to the worst. Absolutely. So I think we'll definitely see a trend, at least in some of these best states. Number 10 is Vermont, 9, Wisconsin, 8, out west to Oregon. And then we get to the heartland with North Dakota at number seven, back east to number six with Maine. The top five starts out with Washington State, then Minnesota, Illinois, Nevada, and Hawaii at number one. So we don't necessarily see regional ties here. 
I think in the top 50, you might see that northeastern states or heartland states do better. Sorry, in the top half here. But not so much as regional ties. I think you do might see political ties. When we broke this down across political lines, blue states tended to be a little friendlier toward women than red states, and we'll, we'll see that toward the bottom of the rankings as well. Now, when you say a little, what does that mean, a little friendly? I mean, can we put that in percentages, or, or are they almost equal, are you saying, that the blue states and red states are pretty close in terms of how friendly they are to women? So number one here would be the friendliest, right? 50th would be the least friendly. So on average, blue states ranked something like 21st on average, while red states ranked about 30th. So we do see a slight difference in the average of rankings. Is that a surprise? Not necessarily. I mean, we've been doing this study for about four years now, and that's been the general consensus most years. I think a lot of that comes down to education and health care and political empowerment. The workplace seems a little bit less of a divide. You know what I found interesting in, in, in what you say here is that every, every state, so every single state, all 50 states, women earn less than men. And Hawaii, as you mentioned, is one of the good states, but it has the lowest gap, uh, with women earning 12% less, whereas Wyoming has the highest, 31%. Um, so any kind of comment on that. We're talking about every single state women earn less than men. How far have we come? <laughs> every single state. I mean, we have come, it seems like every couple years we increase a penny, right? So right now the national average is around 83 cents on the dollar. A couple of years ago it was 81 cents. So we do see we're inching closer. That's as, as a nation, but some states just have a lot more to go than others. And a lot of that depends on the kind of work available in the state as well. So, you know, take uh, Wyoming versus Hawaii, um, any type of state that might have a little bit more part-time work, factory work, things like that. Right now we see that just as far as minimum wage workers, nearly two-thirds of all minimum wage workers across the country are female. So, of course, they're making less when men hold more full-time jobs. And that, I think, is where we see a huge difference from state to state. But what about, Jill, in the same job, women, okay, that's if the minimum wage jobs are going to be less than whether you're, if you're a manager or head of a company. But what about women in the same positions, in the same jobs across the board? Are they still earning less? Let's say a manager of a, of a store, for instance, uh, are they earning less than a, man, a female is earning less than a male? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, women are still earning less across the board. There have been separate studies looking into negotiating and the fact that men are more likely to negotiate salaries starting off or when they get a promotion, et cetera. So that's been pretty interesting, too, kind of what's been bred into a lot of these mentalities. And then when you're talking about maybe the same job starting off but promotional opportunities, Right now, women, even though they're about 50% of the college-educated labor force right now, they make up only 25% of executive or senior-level managers, make up 20% of board seats, and only 6% of CEOs. 
So we see these numbers just decrease and decrease as the pay scale moves up. So what accounts for that? Let's talk about that because it seems to me, and and I'm not really looking at obviously the statistics over the past 20 years, but it seems like the statistics have somewhat remained the same in terms of women uh, not being able to negotiate higher salaries on the same job as a man or even negotiate a promotion. Um, You know, we have a whole new generation of women, including, you know, the millennials, the um, Gen X, but yet the same set of social circumstances seem to dictate how much money women earn in the workplace. Absolutely. So I think things like job sharing, telecommuting, on-site daycares, family leave, all of those things would really help increase how many females we're seeing making more money, how many senior, how many we're seeing in senior management roles. All of those things I think would benefit here. I mean, it really isn't just a one-pronged solution. I think that we have to be able to see women in leadership roles. Imagine women in leadership roles first, and then the structural changes will happen. I think you're right. I just went to a, um, a wedding in uh, in Sweden, and it's sort of in Copenhagen, actually, and it also kind of bears out what you're saying, where the bride was a physician, so are most of the women at, the, at this particular wedding. And what I found was, in talking to people, most of these women – um, took a mater- had the opportunity to take a long ma- uh, maternity leave, and then they went back to work, and their husbands, I spoke to several husbands who were professionals who were now home on paternity leave taking care of the children. So that was shared equally. So it sort of goes along with what you're saying. Um, you know, both of them take time off from work, and obviously both of them have opportunities to be with the family. But so it sort of evens, it sounds like it, it sort of levels the playing field. Absolutely, and this is another thing that we've talked about is just parental leave in general. You know, it's not now just about maternal leave, maternity leave, things like that. It really is parental leave or on-site daycares, things like that that really help both sides of the equation here. I think that we do see that necessary with women more, especially with the number of one-parent households that are made up of women now which is really a socioeconomic issue that kind of bleeds into this as well. So we do see many different solutions or partly solutions to this problem, but it really is going to take a number of them to see some real change. As you said, we've seen this be kind of stagnant for the past decade or so. Yeah. Here's another statistic. I mean, men, this is uh, that you present to us, men have longer average work days than women with Nevada has the lowest average work hour gap uh, and North Dakota has the highest. I'm always interested. Okay. What's your take on that? Well, why do men, they work longer work days and why, what would be the difference between Nevada and North Dakota? I mean, what would be some of the circumstances that would come, you know, that I guess would, uh, why we have this kind of a statistic. So this, again, comes into that part-time versus full-time kind of minimum wage worker. Uh, We are seeing that in Nevada, we see the lowest gaps like that. I think Las Vegas actually really helps where people are making good money, doing a lot of work in casinos and the hospitality industry where things are pretty much leveled out. 
But when we go to North Dakota, when we go to somewhere rural with farmland and factories, we see that women usually take on part-time opportunities and get paid lower while they're doing it. So it's kind of a twofold thing here in those more rural states. So you, I mean, we know where you work. Uh, where would you suggest, like if you're, I mean, all of this, you know, having all these statistics, <clears throat> what would be your recommendation, let's say, for a young woman who's graduating from college and is looking to uh, get into, well, in, I don't retail business. Uh, is there a place where you actually would suggest that they should go because it's more favorable to them to work in one state over another? Yes and no. So when we look at the states with the smallest income income gaps, where women are making almost as much as men, places like Florida, New York, North Carolina all come to mind. But at the same time, when we're looking at the largest executive positions gap, New York is right there again. So you can be making almost as much as men, but still maybe not getting that promotion that you always wanted in certain states. There really is... Not one state safe for Hawaii, which is kind of hard to get to, <laughs> that across the board is great for politics, for education, for the workplace. So I would say, you know, definitely look into these types of things. I would say that income is certainly important, so look at the states with the smallest income gaps. But when it comes to real workplace satisfaction, that's where some of these states might be hit or miss. Well, I'm looking at Rhode Island in terms of workplace satisfaction. That has the highest unemployment rate gap, favoring women with 2.4% more unemployed men. Um, Interesting. Uh, Rhode Island is a very small state. Um, Let's talk about that statistic. Where did that come from? Yeah, so that's interesting. Rhode Island is kind of a... An interesting dichotomy here because it has one of the highest unemployment rates in the country. So right now we are seeing that women are doing a little bit better off than the men there right now. I think Rhode Island has its own economic problems to deal with here as well. So it ranks 13th best just for workplace. But when you look at education, when you look at the number of women who haven't seen a doctor due to cost in the last year, that's where it ranked 40th. So pretty down in the dumps. Political empowerment, again, not a lot of women represented in the state legislature, none at all in terms of the Senate or the House of Reps. So again, you might have a great workplace opportunities there, but is that worth your sacrificing any type of your education or health care systems? So, you really, so in other words, if we're going to use these statistics, which how should we use them, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because as you say, there are so many things to take a look at, not just, you know, simply some of the percentages of who women, you know, getting uh, equal pay for equal jobs. But how do we sit down and sort of, we're trying to decide where we want to, and we have the opportunity to make those kinds of choices where we want to live, where we want to look for a job. How do we disseminate all this information so that it works for us? Absolutely. So, We group this, obviously, by each one of these three rankings, workplace, education, and politics. We then averaged out those scores to come up with this overall list where we said Hawaii was number one, Vermont in the top ten. We're seeing that overall, you know, that's a pretty good gauge of where these states are, even for state leaders to look at this and say, hmm, 
out of the northeastern states, I could be doing a little bit better, et cetera. So definitely look at the overall rankings as a gauge of how your state is doing, of how a state you're looking to move is doing. But if you know that you're looking to be an entrepreneur, if you're looking to make more money, if you're looking to get a promotion, then really look at this workplace environment. You can actually filter them just by the workplace. If you're going to grad school, then maybe you want to look at the education rankings more. If you know that you want a career in politics or if you want to be more heavily represented in politics, then obviously maybe put a little more weight on that. So that's why we broke them down as such to really give everyone more of what they're looking for as well as the overall kind of high-top trends. This is good information because I think, Joe, most people do not do that. It kind of is hit or or miss. Uh, You know, you decide on, let's say, university education, maybe just based on how much the university costs initially, but never really think about it in terms of the, the, as you're talking about it, you know, what the uh, ramifications are for choosing that university or college, Um, or even a job, you know, you get a job, and and, and I I see young people doing this all the time, okay, I'm going to get a higher, a woman, let's take, obviously, we're going to take females, and I'm going to get a job that's higher paying in California now, but not really looking at the overall picture, or maybe what you know, what the implications for the future are in terms of that job and pay, et cetera. So, Absolutely. And we see that all the time. You know, you, you get a higher-paying job in New York or California, but you're also paying a lot more to live there. And that might set you up for a different track than making a little bit less in a place with a lot lower cost of living, maybe better politics, et cetera. So it's hard to really look at that stuff when you're just coming out of college. I think you see the money and you kind of go for that. But as we get older, we really start to think about what our health care system looks like, what's more important to us, and what we can sacrifice or not moving forward. You know, you keep mentioning, well, you actually mentioned a couple times uh, the legislature opportunities for women. Uh, and I think this is in the news every day, and it's sort of it's borne out in your statistics. In every state legislature, male lawmakers outnumber their female counterparts, uh, with no- Nevada having the lowest gap, 34.2% more males, and Wyoming, 87.5% more males. So if we want, and this, you know, without even having seen this statistic, uh, I was somewhat aware of it. Uh, you can just, reading in the news, how do we change that? I mean, if women want to have a say and want to uh, have a say in in, uh, in, in the choice in government and what they do in education and jobs, et cetera, we have to be in the state legislatures, don't we? And how do we get there and why aren't we doing it? And I'm interested in how you, uh, in this particular statistic, how we can improve on that. Absolutely. I mean, looking at this globally, the U.S. right now is ranked 73rd when it comes to the gender gap in political empowerment. So that's saying a lot. You know, there are very strong countries across the globe that are run with women as chief of staff, chief of office. The U.S. obviously is not one of them. But I think that the implementation of things like gender quotas and electoral votes, um, reserving a percentage of political seats for women, those types of things that we've seen proven successful in other countries, I think would definitely help. Obviously, I think the U.S. is far away from doing that. 
the U.S. in general hears the word quota and kind of boos that from the start. But I think that, you know, we might need to see some type of thing that really not only encourages women to get the votes, but our problem in America is women not running at all. And that's really what needs to be changed. Well, it would be interesting to see what uh, it does need to be changed. Uh, we're, we seem to be not on the track for that. It would be interesting. I would be interested if you got some statistics on, like, stu- students uh, in high school, maybe college, but I'm even thinking about high school females who intend to get into politics, who even want to get into politics. And are they, ever, are they, you know, are they pointed in that direction? Probably not. Probably not. And again, with the U.S., we're one of the only countries that doesn't have like a state-mandated civics requirement for graduating high school. A few states do, but most do not. So you don't really need to know about your nation's history, about current politics, to even go on to college. I think that's a huge problem across the country. I think that should be mandated in every state, not only to get more focus on politics and make everyone a little bit more aware, but obviously... I think if women are learning that at a young age, obviously they'll be more inclined to pursue that when they get older. Exactly. Well, we have a few minutes left, um, about three minutes left. So, and we've been talking obviously about the report, but not the full report. And there is a full report and a full report for each state. So, there, and there's a website that uh, we can go to, right, if anybody wants even a more in-depth uh, report about what we've been talking about today. Absolutely. You can head to wallethub.com, head to our Education and Statistics Center. You'll see that this is the best and worst states for women equality. This was published about three weeks ago. You can see exactly where your state ranks, a little bit more into why, and then feel free to get in touch with your local representatives to hopefully change that. And what about you? Is there a website we can go to to find out more about you and what what you are doing? Yeah, absolutely. You can head to, I usually post a lot of these links on Twitter. My Twitter is at Joe Gonzalez TV, and you'll see a lot of these stats. Whether you like them or not, I'm learning on Twitter, uh, all available there. So you can see what we're working on, what we're doing in the future, too. Yeah, when you say whether you like them or not on the Twitter account, but but you get a lot of challenges, a lot of angry responses. Uh, You know, it's both. I think... You know, when we're doing this at a national level and everyone lives in their state, everyone lives in their butt, in their little bubble, they might think their state's doing great. And when they see them ranked in the bottom 10, it kind of shocks them. Or vice versa, if someone in the state knows that this needs to be changed, they see our report and they finally get some validation. So we really do get both sides here. Yeah, so they see your report, um, and that's interesting, and it is validation and can be used, I imagine, right? I mean, used for uh, politically, uh, it's um, because because of, obviously, the content, and it is uh, not fake news. Uh, so we'll be looking for what's your next thing that you're going to do? we got about a minute left that you are going to. Well, you know, we are watching the administration, so we're seeing if anything's changing soon, how that would affect certain states. Obviously, with health care, we did a lot of reports on what it would look like in the future, repeal versus replacement versus nothing, et cetera. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the administration and seeing how we can help people navigate whatever happens next. 
Great. Great having you on the show today. Thanks so much. Uh, this, we've been talking to Jill Gonzalez, consumer finance expert and financial literacy advocate at WalletHub. Um, have a good day. Thanks. Thanks, Catherine. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas, we are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is psychologist, learning specialist, and executive director, Thomas Armstrong, PhD, and author of The Myth of the ADHD Child, 101 Ways to Improve Your Child's Behavior and Attention Span Without Drugs, Labels, or Coercion. When psychologist Thomas Armstrong, PhD, authored The Myth of the ADD Child 20 years ago, he believed that the popular label attention deficit disorder, what we refer to now as ADHD, was a dubious diagnosis that was leading our nation to over-medicate our children. What he didn't know was how ADHD would grow to become the most common behavioral disorder diagnosed in children in the United States. Dr. Armstrong explores this problematic history of the ADD slash ADHD diagnosis, looking at the broader societal reasons for the ADHD epidemic. He's featured in Parenting Magazine. He's been on the Today Show, CBS This Morning, CNN, etc. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Thomas. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be on. So your book, The Myth, and I guess maybe that's the first question, The Myth of the ADHD the child, I'm trying to get this acronym right, um, the myth is, well, when you say ADHD is a myth, are you saying that it doesn't exist at all? No, I'm, I'm clearly the uh, symptoms of ADHD, the hyperactivity, impulsivity, and distractibility are very real. 
and very problematic for many parents and teachers. So I don't want people calling in or writing me saying, how can you say it doesn't exist? I have it. You know, I, I, when I first had the book come out 20 years ago, people got very angry. And that's why even in, early on in the book, I say, please, I understand. I was a special education teacher for five years. I know that these um, symptoms of these behaviors and this difficulty paying attention are very real. When I say it's a myth, I'm using the word myth in the uh, original Greek sense of mythos, which means story. We have been told a story about ADHD, how it's a neurobiological disorder, probably of genetic origin, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact is there are a lot of problems with that story, um, among which is the fact that uh, diagnosing it is a very subjective factor. Uh, These rating scales seem to be the most often used diagnostic instrument. And a parent is asked to rate a child on a scale of one to five in terms of their fidgeting and their organization and things like that. Um, And it's just a subjective matter whether or not you're going to, on this particular morning, going to put a three or a four or a two or whatever it happens to be. So that's one big problem. Another big problem is that people are uh, disagree about how frequent it is. Uh, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control, say that um, 11% of our kids are ADHD. The American Psychiatric Association says 5%. In Europe, they say about 2 to uh, 5%. So, I mean, there's all these variations. Even around the states, uh, there's some states so that I'm have... So I'm going to interrupt you just for a second because you're saying it's it's really it sounds subjective subjective within our own community here in the United States which is very different in terms of the percentages of kids who get diagnosed say in Europe so right. let's just maybe go back a little what it for somebody or for and I make the assumption that most people know what it is or have some idea of what it is but kind of give an overall general definition of ADHD and how you, in terms of symptoms and diagnosing a child. Sure. Well, in terms of the the behaviors, um, hyperactivity is one example of kids that just have troubles staying seated, they're fidgeting, they're moving around. Uh, Distractibility, mentally, their um, minds are all over the place, like ping pong balls. And impulsivity, they tend to you know, sort of burst into the room or burst into conversation when perhaps it's not socially appropriate, have trouble forgetting their homework or organizing their schoolwork. Um, There's a whole, you know, menu of, um, you know, particular behaviors that if you look it up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you know, a child's supposed to have a certain number of these in order to qualify for a diagnosis. Um, so, yeah, these things are real, um, and the kids, um, there's, you know, an epidemic of kids who have these symptoms, um, and there's also a, a various varieties of this, kids that have the um, hyperactivity, other kids that have more the distractibility element. Um, but what I'm saying is that these kids um, often are be, uh, hyperactive or distractible, not because of a sort of a unknown, as of yet unknown, neurobiological disorder, 
but because they're wired differently. Um, they uh, get bored more easily. They tend to be novelty seekers, which is a feature of creativity. So, you know, they get, uh, I don't understand why we give a negative label to somebody who gets bored so easily because that's actually a good thing to have because it tells us maybe we should make things more interesting. Kids with ADHD diagnosis just need higher levels of stimulation. That's why Ritalin and Adderall are psychostimulants. They bring that child up to that level of stimulation that they need so that they don't produce it themselves through some of their hyperactive behaviors. So, Dr. Um, Armstrong, let's put this in because, I mean, you said so much so far. So, what we, I guess what you're saying is don't we have to put this into a context? This, this behavior is not out of context. And, and the example you gave of exactly. creativity, some kid is really creative and in a boring classroom is going to become hyperactive or a gifted child for that matter because it's so boring. Or, But there are lots of different reasons. Let's talk about some of those reasons sure. uh, or the context in which these diagnoses are made. Well, one of the uh, interesting things is that um, uh, apparently uh, uh, studies have suggested that if a child is the youngest in their class, and this is not in in respect to any other behaviors or any other issues, if they're simply the youngest in their class, their chances of being diagnosed with ADHD goes up 30% and being medicated for it. So, uh, and this jives with uh, other research saying that the brains of kids uh, labeled ADHD actually mature two or three years later than the average person. Uh, it's normal development, it's just developmentally later. So we're talking about a different pace of growing and attending and learning, and we need to adjust our developmental timetables for these kids Whereas in in actuality, we're going in the other direction. We're expecting more and more um, mature behaviors from younger and younger kids. And our preschools and our kindergartens are turning into these academic institutions instead of places where kids need to play and get involved in multisensory activities. Um, and because we're pushing back this developmental timetable just at the moment that we have these kids who have two to three years later maturation, they're, they're like caught between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, again, as you point out, the context uh, in the context that they're in, they appear to have all these so-called disordered behaviors. Yeah, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm, I get this picture in my mind. You're taking these little kids, and I am for daycare, obviously good daycare, and it's necessary. You're taking these little kids, and you're putting them in a, an environment where they are really restricted, no matter how unrestricted they try to have these, you know, the uh, a school or a preschool, whereas... Maybe 20, 30 years ago, these kids were out running around, uh, playing exactly. in the backyard, uh, getting out all that energy that, and riding a bicycle down the street or whatever. Um, and so, you know, when you think about that, uh, it seems, I mean, I can understand why there are more, you know, ADHD diagnoses. But another reason you give, too, is the whole pharmaceutical company and drugs and, you know, trying to medicate what's a, you know, you get a huge population of people who are being medicated if you take these uh, children. uh, And that's an issue, too. Yes, there's a whole, one of the reasons for the epidemic is that a lot of people have a vested economic interest in seeing that there are a lot of kids out there who are diagnosed with ADHD and are medicated. The pharmaceutical industry expects to make about $22 billion 
worldwide by the year 2024 in uh, ADHD medications. But there are problems with these medications. Just yesterday I was blogging on a recent study that indicated that taking Ritalin in childhood and adolescence can have long-lasting effects on brain chemistry. It can affect uh, a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is um, an inhibitory transmitter in the brain. And uh, this affects kids who have been taking their uh, psychostimulants all during their lives. In adulthood, they have less um, natural GABA being produced. There's a downregulation of that because the drugs they've been taking have already been, have been doing it for them and the natural tendency of the brain to, to do this has been eroded. And that, that's a real problem. Uh, there are other problems, cardiovascular issues. There's bone density loss problems, even the risk of psychosis. So it's not something that you want to use as a first-line treatment as it often is. It should be more of a last resort after trying a lot of non-drug alternatives. And that's why I wrote the book, because I really felt that uh, parents deserve to have as broad a range of strategies that are not medication-related so that when they go to the doctor's office and the doctor says, well, uh, here's a prescription, the parent can say, well, gee, I have a copy here of this book saying there's 101 non-drug strategies. Do you think maybe we could try some of these first? before going into the medication issue. Medication does work, and it is important for some kids. It makes a, a big difference in some kids' lives. So I'm not against medication per se. I just think it is over, much way overused. Sometimes doctors give this uh, diagnosis and prescription with a 15-minute interview, you know, because they're in a rush and, um, you know, the, the, they've just had a visit from their uh, pharmaceutical representative, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there's uh, over-medication, over-diagnosis. It's a big problem. So medication in moderation, maybe that should be yeah. what uh, you walk into the doctor's office, but it's hard for parents when they go in and they're talking to the pediatrician and he or she says, we need to medicate your kid. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, we need to read your book. And if we read your book, because you mentioned there are other strategies besides medication, what are some of those things that parents can do uh, if they you know, if they feel that their kid is overactive or too impulsive or whatever, other, other than medicating him or her? Right. Well, I mean, we, we've already alluded to some of these. Um, making time for play, getting out in nature. Uh, it turns out that studies have shown that when kids are out in nature, their ADHD symptoms go down. Uh, getting uh, your child involved in exercise. Exercise has been related to a decrease in ADHD symptoms. Dietary issues. Uh, junk food recently has been linked to ADHD symptoms. And conversely, a Mediterranean diet, which is whole foods, you know, whole grains and legumes and fruits and vegetables and fish that have omega-3 oils also have been linked to lower ADHD symptoms. And then there are just a lot of really good basic behavioral strategies, you know, uh, encourage your child uh, based upon their strengths, find out what interests them, engage them in a sport that they love, find an animal that they can take care of, have them tutor a, a younger child. I mean, they're just uh, so many different ideas um, that can be used to help kids bring out the best in them. Uh, you know, one of the issues that I raise in the book is that we focus so much these days on disabilities and on pathologies 
of what used to be considered normal behavior, particularly with boys. You know, boys, it used to be that if we saw boys wrestling out in the hallway, we'd just kind of laugh and say, well, that's, you know, boys will be boys. And now we don't do that anymore. We say, well, it looks like you've got ADHD or you're, uh, let's refer you to the doctor. And so we've got to somehow get back to some older values in a sense um, while we, you know, incorporate and implement some of the new strategies. Meditation, uh, mindfulness meditation has been associated with a decrease in symptoms. Um, uh, The creative arts, getting your child to take their sort of rather uncontrolled energy and channel it into drama or into music or into um, uh, painting, visual arts of some kind. Those are all really good. Get your child some wiggle furniture and, and have the uh, teachers get wiggle furniture in the, in the uh, classroom, by which I mean, you know, uh, we now know that fidgeting seems to help these kids focus. So if they can sit on a stability ball, these gigantic Pilates-type balls, uh, and jiggle around as they work, that helps them focus. Um, or give them a squeeze ball or some other kind of quiet thing. I don't think these fidget spinners are very good because they're visually distracting, but you know, other fidgeting toys can be really helpful um, if they don't distract other students while they're working. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, I think two things is when you, when you do that as a parent, that also involves uh, parent interaction too. So there's another step to that because parents on some level have to get involved in these well, you call them active versus passive learning, so which I think is a, you know obviously something uh, important for the for children for as you say it, um, in, instead of medication. But then the parents have to get involved. Absolutely too. important. Absolutely important uh, for parents to uh, develop good communication skills. That's one of my strategies. Take a parent training course if you feel like maybe the discipline is a little bit more difficult for you. Um, create, you know, behavior mod programs that involve your child, you know, like you can contract with your child saying, you know, there's this behavior I don't like and can we think of some things that you we can you can get if you if you don't do this anymore and let's draw up a contract and that kind of thing. Um, so just you know having good home school communication, uh, coming in and meeting with the teacher real early on in the year, saying you know my kid's a little bit different. He, you may say he moves more often. That's kind of natural for him. Um, here's some things that I've seen have worked with previous teachers and that have worked at home. Um, and, and not to do this in a kind of a, uh, you better do this or I'm going to be on your case because teachers can get defensive. But uh, here's some suggestions to make your job easier so that you don't have to do a whole learning curve with my child. You know, I, I'm going to save you a lot of the work on this. So, you know, definitely be a personal coach to your child, you know, help them think through things, ask them questions like, how might you have done that thing differently, you know, um, what might you do differently in the future, help them, helping them set goals for themselves um, is another important strategy. There are just uh, so many different ways that parents can be helpful to their kids, can be uh, coaches and teachers to their kids. 
um, and uh, really help their kids prosper in life. And I, I think the emphasis needs to be on the positive. The problem with this ADHD label is that it's all medical. Everything's couched in medical terminology. So naturally, a medicine is going to seem like the first and best uh, approach to it. And there's going to be all this nervousness like, oh, my gosh, you know, my, de- my, my child is, is uh, there's something wrong with him. And that's the last thing a child needs, you know, when they're having some behavioral issues or attention issues, to be surrounded by adults who see the worst in them. They need to be surrounded by, uh, ki- uh, by adults and kids who see their strengths, who see their abilities, and who develop those abilities um, and, and, and envision positive futures for them. Well, do you remember And when you were in school? I mean, can you remember, I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this. In elementary school, I remember them wanting to, you had, I, I remember thinking, I can't sit here all day without talking, and I'm still talking. So, right. uh, and always. <laughs> and you're getting paid for it, too. That's good. And getting paid for it. But, you know, they used to try and make it so that I would stop talking and they would always move somebody, you know, I'd have to go outside the classroom and, you know, that was my punishment, come back in. Uh, finally, they decided to put this kid to sit beside me who didn't talk very much and they figured that would solve the problem. It had the opposite uh, effect because he never <laughs> talked and I got to do all the talking. He became but, your audience, yeah. Yeah, that was my audience, exactly. But, you know, it was the same kind of thing. You know, you just need to, you know, just trying to get this kid to be quiet in this case. Um, I do think there are, gen- and this, you know, the, to another point that you made, there are gender differences. I think there's, and, and maybe this is just, this is not a, obviously a medical diagnosis, but I think even with little boys, there's that testosterone kicks in even when they're little, even when they're preschool, and they tend to be a lot more physical than girls. I, right. You know, that's my observation. Exactly, and that is borne out by studies uh, of gender differences, that, kids, uh, that boys like to change activities more often. They like to engage in object play, in other words, with trucks and things moving around, hands-on learning. And, and girls, on the other hand, tend to uh, in, get more involved in verbal and interpersonal interactions, which in a traditional elementary school classroom definitely favors them, especially considering that most uh, elementary school teachers are female and have uh, sort of gender, you know, unconscious gender expectations for kids, which puts uh, boys at a disadvantage. And, of course, the rates of ADHD are by far... Um, I think it's a five-to-one ratio of boys to girls. So uh, we could be looking at some uh, gender discrimination issues here as well. Yeah. So what would you say, I mean, in terms of let's take a look at the educational system and and kind of the pushback. I mean, you're an educator, you're a psychologist. The pushback that, that you get from teachers, from principals, from people in the system who uh, who you talk to, who read your book, who obviously who are aware of, of you know, um, what you're advocating. What, what right. is the push? Yeah. Well, I spend most of my career actually working with teachers, doing workshops around the world, and uh, I encourage teachers to use as many different um, interactive, experiential strategies as possible. Strategies, learning strategies that involve the body, that involve music, that involve getting out in nature, that involve interacting socially 
through learning so that being able to talk becomes not a disturbance in the classroom, but an advantage. You know, if, if you had been in a classroom growing up where uh, a lot of cooperative learning and collaborative learning went on, you would have been able to get rewarded for your talk instead of being sent out into the hallway. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the pushback I get is actually positive when I you put it, you know, in the sense of not a, not being, you know, overcritical, but just saying, hey, you know, we all know that lecture isn't the way to reach kids. There are other ways. Everybody, every teacher understands that. They know that. Even though there is a uh, sort of a groupthink going on um, saying that, well, that's kind of like my default position, you know, if I can't think of anything else interesting to come up with. So that's why I've been, you know, helping teachers generate strategies, develop lesson plans, um, create curricula that really engages the whole child rather than just this kind of worksheet lecture uh, aspect because there's evidence that I present in the book saying that when the kids um, labeled ADHD are listening to lectures, their symptoms go up. And when they are actively engaged in a conversation or doing something that is hands-on, their symptoms go down. So, you know, and, and the fact is, this, these changes in, in a more uh, vital and experiential education are good not just for these kids, but they're good for all kids. Every kid deserves to have this kind of interactive education. They learn better. They're more excited and engaged in learning. And so it's just that our kids with the ADHD lab- label tend to uh, show the, the problems first, you know, because they have this... Uh, difficulty dealing with passive learning, you know, with boring learning, and um, they're just, are there any uh, schools? Are there any schools um, that are doing this well? That public schools, that, that, oh yeah, you know, yeah, that that you could mention that are doing um, what we've been talking about. Well, uh, there's a, a lot of different school districts that have been em- employing uh, sort of a, what I call multiple intelligences um, all over the world, actually. There's um, a multiple intelligence school in Manila in the Philippines that teaches kids to be entrepreneurs. There's a school in St. Louis that has an art gallery and, and has kids as artists. Um, you know, uh, contributing to the gallery openings. There's um, all sorts of uh, programs that are engaging kids in project-based learning where kids can plan out, um, let's say, a way to improve the ecology, uh, uh, let's say, the water system in a, in a community, and they investigate it in a scientific way, and they interview people, and then they produce a multimedia um, PowerPoint presentation where they uh, get um, you know people active and involved in making some changes. So these these things are all happening actually all over the United States, and it's just that they need to become the rule rather than than the exception. And we're in a climate today in education and have been over the last three decades where the emphasis has been placed on standardized testing and on getting good test results. And that climate simply has to change. Um, my next book is going to be called The Miseducation of America because we have gotten way off on the wrong track and we need to kind of recenter ourselves to the fact that the developing, uh, engaging learning and the love of learning is really the most important thing and that test scores are actually fairly worthless and even harmful in some cases because they um, 
don't honor creativity. They, you know, if the child has a great creative answer to give on a test and they write it in the margin, nobody's going to see it because the computer is, you know, is the one that corrects the uh, standardized test. So we have to change. We're going to have to, leave, have to say goodbye. We've got a minute left on that sure. note. So I do want to uh, mention the book again, The Myth of the ADHD. The Child, 100 Ways to Improve Your Child's Behavior and Attention Span Without Drugs, Labels, or Coercion. And this is Dr. Thomas Armstrong, Ph.D. Uh, just mention the website we can go to. You can get the book online, bookstores everywhere. Sure. And you can go to my website, which is um, Institute, the number four, learning.com. Institute for learning.com. Thanks so much, Dr. Thomas Armstrong, Ph.D. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.